The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. We're going to go ahead and go to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's go ahead and turn there. So we are going through together uh, Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, and we're reaching the conclusion. We are in chapter 15, one of the longest chapters in this book, chapter 15, all the way up to verse 58. And the theme of 1 Corinthians 15 is a doctrinal issue that Paul wants to confront. Most of the issues beforehand were not so much doctrinal as much as they were behavioral and attitudinal problems in the church. And Paul was addressing them one by one. And he was made aware that there was a problem now in the Corinthian church, a church that he planted, pastored for a year and a half, left the church to go plant other churches. Now he's a couple hundred miles away in Ephesus writing them as their former pastor, but also as an apostle, and addressing all these issues. They had actually written Paul and asked some questions. Paul, can you, what do you think about this? And can you help us with this? this? So this issue of the resurrection may have been in correspondence of a letter they sent to Paul, and he's responding to that issue. Or it could be that he just heard about problems of false teaching going on in the young, immature Corinthian church that's now just three years old uh, on this very important issue regarding... Some Just a few people in the Corinthian congregation who had a wrong view about resurrection. And it's not a secondary issue. Resurrection is the backbone of the gospel. You can't be a Christian, according to Scripture, and reject the, God, uh, the resurrection. The resurrection is at the heart of gospel-saving truth. And so, uh, just to highlight by way of reminder again, verse 12 is the problem that Paul is addressing in this chapter. Now, if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some of you, some, the few of you, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And so Paul needs to get them to cease and desist on this wrong view. And as he's going through the chapter, there's an escalation. If you read it all in context, 1 through 58, Nonstop in terms of the continuity. Um, it's kind of like Paul's going to get a little more personal as he goes. He gets a little more passionate as he's making his arguments. And a perfect example of that is the section we're looking at today, verses 29 through 34. He gets very, uh, before 29, he got very theological and logical. But here he's, he's getting personal. And at the end of uh, this section towards 33... Not just personally, he gets quite passionate. But again, keep in mind, the Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians? Well, first and foremost, we would say the Holy Spirit of God did. So everything that is recorded in 1 Corinthians uh, is from God, the mind of God. It's God's theology, not Paul's theology. We need to keep that in mind, because when we get to verse 33 and 34, you're like, whoa, Paul, he's a little hot. And was that appropriate, what he said? Well, yeah, it's recorded in Scripture. He has the authority delegated from God as a spokesperson of God, speaking with binding authority. And the issue at hand wasn't a secondary tangential issue. This was a priority that needed to be... There are um, wrong views or theological uh, views or even doctrines at times that are kind of secondary. And there are primary doctrines. And sometimes those secondary doctrines aren't even essential to become a Christian. For example, do you have to have a detailed and exhaustive view of whether men and women and where they serve in ministry before you become a Christian? No, you need to believe in the gospel to be saved. You need to believe in the gospel, the whole gospel. Do you need to uh, believe in a young earth creation in order to become a Christian? No. You need to believe in the gospel to be saved. Do you need to believe in election in order to become a Christian? No. You need to believe in the gospel to be saved. And then when you get saved, Jesus said in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, now for the rest of your life, till you die or Jesus comes, you need to continue to be discipled, being taught in everything that I have revealed to the apostles that we have in Scripture. So it's a lifelong pursuit, this learning process. So point being, there are some beliefs and doctrines that are precious, that are true and biblical that are secondary. That doesn't mean they're less important, but they come in a context of you're already a Christian and you now have 
the supernatural capacity and ability to believe that biblical truth in a way that you couldn't before you got saved. But it starts with the gospel. And you can't compromise any element of the gospel, including the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which entails the resurrection of all true believers as well, and become a Christian. So Paul is making this a priority. This is a doctrine that can't be compromised. You can't reject the resurrection. And uh, it needs to be stopped. In the words of Titus, where he said the same thing, these false teachers need to be silenced. Literally, you need to shut their mouth. If they're not going to shut their mouths, Paul said to Titus, you need to shut their mouth. Literally. Titus 1. Which, by the way, is one of the responsibilities of a shepherd of God, of a pastor, of an elder. We need to safeguard the purity of the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. That's a hard thing to do. It's a courageous thing to do. Need God's supernatural strength to do it. Because one of the vulnerabilities or susceptibilities would be to shirk and cater to the fear of man and compromise on biblical doctrine. So Paul's just being a faithful shepherd and a faithful apostle. So keep that in mind as we look at this passage today. Uh, I titled the sermon, Beware of Heresy, with an exclamation point. Beware of heresy. Those actually aren't my words. That comes right out of the text. That comes right out of this passage. We're going to see that. Beware of heresies. First uh, Corinthians fifteen twenty nine to 34. And then I uh, make uh, three points of emphasis that Paul is going to give us. So we'll hang our thoughts on those three main points before we do. I've got a question for you, Christian. Don't answer out loud, but answer in your own heart and think about this. Um, what is, if you're a Christian, what is the ultimate motivation for you to live the Christian life? Answer that in your own heart. And I would say, don't think of a spiritual thing uh, versus a non I want you to think of a physical thing. Those are both legitimate. Like Paul said, one of his greatest motivations to live the Christian life is to honor and please God. That's a great answer, about the best answer you can give. Think of a physical thing, because um, there are physical things that actually Christians or people who say they're Christians, they live for, they're motivated by, they aspire to. Uh, they think this is the perk of Christianity. This is the blessing of Christianity. This is what I'm pursuing as a Christian. This is one of my goals. This is what I want to achieve. This is what I want to receive. This is what I want to be blessed by. Uh, and I want all of us to think about that. What is one of the uh, main goals or incentives or motivations for living the Christian life, persevering day to day? What do I want to achieve in the Christian life by way of an incentive in my life of what Christianity offers or promises? I'm trying to state it a lot of different ways. Suggested answers are, popular ones, are if you become a Christian, you can have God's guarantee of health, wealth and prosperity. That's a very dominant promise around the world. That is a false promise. That is blatantly unbiblical. Jesus never promised health, material wealth, or prosperity. But that is an incentive that a lot of people have. Um, other ones uh, that people might be living for as Christians or people who think they're Christians, incentives of things they want to achieve uh, might be recognition. This is a temptation for maybe people who go into full-time ministry. You're in seminary. Well, what do you want? I want to become a scholar. I want to become a commentator. I want to become a seminary professor. I want to become a pastor of a big mega church. They might not say it that way, but it is a temptation of the heart. Become influential and recognized and popular and influential and receive the accolades and have the spotlight and uh, make my voice be heard. And I mean, on and on. These are incentives and motivations and uh, People see that as sometimes as a success monitor that we have to guard against. So I wanted us to be thinking about what's motivating us. And while you're thinking about that, doing some self-evaluation, I want to read from Philippians 3 just to remind you of well, what motivated the Apostle Paul. And then this will take us uh, on a segue right into 1 Corinthians in context of the importance of the resurrection. So Philippians 3, Paul does get a little personal. He lets us know what his his incentive is for why he does what he, why, what he does, why he preaches, why he's a pastor, why he pursues ministry full time, why he sacrifices so much, why he, get this, works harder than all the other apostles. He said that already in the passage we looked at in Corinthians. He said that he worked harder than all the other apostles, more than Peter and all those guys. He wasn't boasting, he was being realistic. 
I'm not basically you could do that because he was single, he wasn't married, just lived life with abandon, and also had to do with his personality and his passion. And he just was 24-7 about God's business. That's the way he conducted himself. Even the output of his work was probably more as a byproduct than any of the other apostles. And that's why he could say with legitimacy in the passage we already saw in 1 Corinthians 15, I do more than all the other apostles, even putting his life at risk. Why do you do that, Paul? Uh, Verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me... Because he was on, he was on the fast track to being a big shot Pharisee and having all kinds of power, and he just gave it all up. Why'd you do that, Paul? Now you have nothing from a world's point of view. Well, whatever things were potential gain to me, those things I have counted a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Okay, so it starts with uh, knowing Jesus Christ personally, but it goes beyond that and may be found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him. Here it is. In order that, I'm doing that. I'm living the Christian life, doing what I'm doing as an apostle, abandoning everything, verse 10, for the purpose of. Here's my ultimate goal. Here's my incentive. Here's my motive. Here's why I do what I do. In order that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. See, that's how important resurrection reality is for the Christian. So hopefully one of your answers is, well, I live my life and I persevere and I go day to day being a Christian and I do what I do and go in the face of the world and hold out and hold on to hope because someday I might be with Christ in a perfect resurrected body in glory. That That is one of our ultimate goals that helps us keep focused living the Christian life and it was true for Paul in order that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death verse 11 in order that the second time that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead there it is he mentions resurrection twice that I might know true resurrection power in this life in my frail body and ultimately resurrection consummated in glory in the life to come Paul was all about the resurrection and resurrection reality and that's why when you go to 1 Corinthians 15, the thought of people in a church that he planted, that he pastored, people he potentially discipled, are now three years later saying there is no such thing as resurrection. You talk about shock, disillusionment, heartbreak, maybe even fury over the idea that, well, maybe it wasn't one of my original disciples. Maybe somebody snuck into the church after I left and is poisoning them with this demonic doctrine. You can imagine how that would infuriate him as he wants to protect his people. I'm just telling you, that's the frame of mind Paul, of Paul right now in verses 29 to 34. So let's go ahead and look at it. Where he culminates that discussion by saying, Beware of heresy. Wake up. Corinthians. So, uh, point number one. Paul wants to encourage and remind the Corinthians... That if you're a Christian, that means you believed in the gospel. If you believed in the gospel, that means you believed in the resurrection of Christ. If you believe in the resurrection of Christ as a reality, then the resurrection of his saints is sure to follow, and that's your motivation in living life. It cannot be abandoned. If you uh, throw out this idea that there's no bodily resurrection of people after they die in this life, uh, then there are all kinds of devastating consequences. He's delineated several already. We've looked at those. It is absurd. It makes life meaningless. And then he goes on now with these personal examples, further examples of why there would be tragic consequences if the rejection is uh, rejected. And also, you would lose all incentive for what is the point? There's no bodily resurrection as promised in Scripture. There is no point for living. I have no motivation to live. And so he's going to tell us and remind us what the motivations and incentives are for living the Christian life in light of resurrection reality. Let's look at the first one. First, consider dead believers. That's what Paul says in verse 29. Otherwise, if, if there wasn't, if resurrection was not a reality, then, Corinthians, come on. What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If there's no such thing as resurrection, then what are these other, what are believers doing getting baptized for? For the dead. And then he repeats the question. 
29. If the dead are not raised at all, then why then are they baptized for them? A couple things to know. Oh, by the way, just so you know, this is the most cryptic, most difficult verse in the entire Bible. I don't know if you're aware of that, in terms of trying to interpret it and explain it. And, it, and it's been for every Christian expositor, exegete all throughout history. A.T. Robertson, in my opinion, the greatest Greek scholar of the New Testament and believer in the history of the church, writing in the early 1900s, said on this passage, and I quote, the meaning of this verse remains a mystery. After he gave all of his exegetical data and composite data summaries, in the end, he waved the white flag. You know what? I don't know the answer. Went back John Calvin 500 years ago, his commentary. The day he wrote that commentary, he had a view that he believed in. I don't know what he thought 10 years later. But he did admit that he's changed his view a few times on this passage. So that's just an example. So he got two of the greatest Bible expositors. I'm, I'm not going to do better than them. And then Johnny Mack, he's a, he was a pretty good... No, he still is. He's a pretty good expositor. My former pastor. And so, I mean, he admitted that uh, the first time he was preaching through this, he had three different views throughout the week. So he had a view on Monday, then he changed his mind. And unfortunately, the people that talked to him on Monday uh, didn't realize the outcome. So he had a different view on Monday, Wednesday, and then Sunday when he preached it. That was 30 years ago. Who knows what he believes today? But So I'm not even going to try to delve in and solve the problem. But Paul does have a main point that's simple. There are things we definitely do know about this passage or this verse and this argument. Here's what we do know. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Now, if you take uh, the, one of the complicated things is the preposition there, the word in the in New American Standard, for, baptized for the dead, says the New American Standard. That's the best face value English translation of the Greek preposition who pair. Baptized for the dead. So the face value meaning is that, wow, Paul, are you saying that we believe in proxy baptism? One person a living Christian gets baptized for a dead person? Now, that's what Mormonism teaches, baptism for the dead. As a matter of fact, that's where Mormonism gets that doctrine from this verse. By the way, this is the only verse they can pull from the Bible because such an idea is taught nowhere in the Bible. But that's what Mormonism believes. So um, I have relatives that are Mormons, and they've actually told me. We have uh, done our study of ancestry and gotten all the McManus names of dead ancestors who have gone before us and all those that are not were not Mormons. We went to the temple in Utah. Now they have temples all over the place. And we got baptized for the dead, for our dead ancestors, one at a time, in the name of Uncle Fred and so on and so forth. And that's fulfilling a, a Mormon doctrine that is central to what they believe. That's proxy baptism. In other words, there's a second chance after you die. If you didn't get saved in this life, then maybe you can get saved in the next life. And so on. And, you, and you, your forgiveness of sin is contingent upon someone else, proxy baptism. So, for the record, Scripture condemns that as false teaching. The Bible doesn't teach proxy baptism. You can't get into heaven based on somebody else's good works. You can't even get to heaven, and I can't get to heaven based on our good works. Okay? So we are clear on that. There's one way to heaven, one way of salvation, one way of forgiveness of sin. It is belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's everything that He did. It is nothing that we do. And it's nothing we do for ourselves or anybody else. So the Bible categorically would reject proxy baptism as heresy, wrong teaching. We are not saved by works. We are saved by grace through faith in the person and the work of Christ. That is clear. So from this verse we know uh, Paul can't be condoning, even if some of the Corinthians were doing proxy baptisms for that purpose, Paul doesn't condone it because he is the master Apostle of salvation by grace through faith apart from works. Uh, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? So it could be that he wasn't talking about proxy baptism, or it could be that some of them were practicing proxy baptism and believed in it, and it could be even uh, the heretics who were saying there was no resurrection are actually doing this proxy baptism for people who have already died. And if that's the case, then Paul's saying, Wow, how hypocritical. You say there's no resurrection of the dead, and yet you are the very ones doing baptisms for dead people. That makes no sense. The reason that's a strong argument is because in verse 29, Paul doesn't say we. He says they. He's talking about somebody else. He doesn't say we the good people, we, we the apostles. He says they, they, they. Even though those people. So that's 
a very popular argument, and it's the face value interpretation in terms of the preposition. Uh, difficulty of interpreting this passage lies in that preposition who pair or for, baptized for the dead. The reason that's a problem, prepositions, even though they're small, they are uh, wily, out of control, complicated things, these prepositions. And if you look up in a Greek dictionary the word who pair, it's a preposition, uh, which I did. There were over 17 different definitions of who pair in terms of other words in the English language. This can mean aboard, about, above, across, after, against, along, among, around, for, behind, below, beneath, behind, between, down, during, except for, from, and my head was about to explode, and with the genitive, with the accusative, with the object, and then uh, one of the popular ones was it can mean for. This preposition can mean for, F-O-R. Oh, okay, that's helpful. That's how the NASB translates it. It can also mean on behalf of, because of, but for was one of the more popular ones. So then, I, okay, well, for, what does that mean? So then I went to Webster's Dictionary. I found 52 definitions or meanings of the English word for for, F-O-R. 52 different nuances. That's how complex, this is a preposition. I'm like, wow, this is giving me a headache. Um, this is very difficult, and that's why this has never been solved in the history of the church. Uh, but Paul's point is clear. We know it's not proxy baptism. Uh, another thing that we clearly know, we know, pretty certain, the Corinthians knew what Paul was talking about when he wrote it. Because he doesn't explain it. So they probably knew what was going on, so they understood his argument. Um, and third, I think the, the importance for us is he's definitely talking about water baptism. And he's definitely talking about living people who say they are Christians, who are themselves getting baptized or baptizing somebody else. And in the New Testament, part of the Great Commission, Jesus said, go out, evangelize. didn't say evangelize, but the implication, preach the gospel. People will get saved when you do. Baptize them. That's at the heart of the Great Commission, baptism. And so you see it all over the book of Acts. Uh, you get saved, you get baptized. And 100% of the time in the New Testament, baptism, the, the Greek word literally, is to get dunked. Jesus got baptized. And it says literally in the Gospels, John the Baptist Baptist baptized him. He went down into the water. He came up out of the water. So it is to get submerged, to get dunked. That's what baptizo means in the Greek New Testament. And so Christ wants us to preach the gospel, see people saved. When they get saved, they are to be baptized by immersion and get dunked the same way 100% of the people who are baptized in the New Testament get dunked. So you don't sprinkle three drops on their forehead. That exists nowhere in the Bible regarding baptism. Nowhere in the New Testament. Baptism means to dunk and emerge. And, I, and historically for 2,000 years across the board, the Christian church has believed that that is a, a metaphor, a graphic, concrete, living metaphor. When somebody comes to Christ and they get baptized, they are submerged in water, they come out. One of the graphic pictures that portrays to all who are watching is resurrection life. That's what baptism means. Resurrection. You go down dead, you come out of the grave and out of the water, clean, forgiven, resurrected. I think that's really simple. That's what Paul's point is. Why are people getting baptized? And baptism means new life and resurrection in Christ if there's no resurrection. Let's just jettison baptism altogether. Regardless of the meaning of what Paul means, let's just get rid of it. Baptism makes no sense for anybody if there's no resurrection. So, uh, very helpful. But that's a very practical illustration that Paul is arguing for his audience uh, to point out their inconsistency. So, uh, so that's why he says, first consider dead believers, or really the point of emphasis there, why do we do baptism? Baptism, first and foremost in our mind, is a celebration of resurrection reality. Which takes us to point number two, verses 30 to 32. So let's go ahead and look at that. Why else should we believe in the resurrection of all people and not abandon it? Number two, second, consider suffering ministers. And Paul's going to refer to himself. And I want you to have your finger in Second Corinthians where we can be reminded. So Paul says, okay, here's my second uh, reason. If there is no resurrection for people, people other than Jesus, if you're a Christian, what, why am I in the ministry? What am I doing? Why, why did I come to Corinth? Preach the gospel to, to you people. Why did I pastor there for a year and a half when a lot of people were trying to chase me out of town and persecute me and mocking me? Why did, why did I spend a year and a half with you, pouring my life into you, if there's no resurrection? 
Because after all, that's what I'm living for is the resurrection. It's my motive. It's my incentive. It's the ultimate reward. Why would I, why would I subject myself to all of this persecution in life of being a Christian? That's his argument. Uh, verse 30 says, why are we also in danger every hour? Literally, uh, why are we putting ourselves in danger daily? Why are we, uh, as apostles, Paul, his companions, the other apostles, 11 out of 12, which were executed, martyred for their faith, and, and then Paul, he's number 13, got his head chopped off for being a Christian, for being an apostle. Paul would say, why are we doing this? There's no resurrection. I, I'm wasting my time. It's not worth it. Why are we doing this? Putting ourselves in danger every hour. The apostle Paul, when he wrote this, he was in Ephesus. At the time, his life was in danger when he was writing this. In Ephesus. 55-ish A.D. Ephesus was one of the most corrupt cities. Uh, He was in imminent danger. He'd probably already been in danger there in Ephesus. Uh, He mentions it uh, in actually the next chapter, chapter 16, verse 8. He says, I remain in Ephesus. I remain in Ephesus. Verse 8, 1 Corinthians 16. I'm here in Ephesus. I'm going to stay here till Pentecost. For a wide door of effective service has opened to me, and there are many, but yet, but there are many adversaries. I have people attacking me all the time. His life is in danger. He'd been in Ephesus a few times. Acts 19 records when he was there on his third missionary journey. Ephesus was known for one thing. It was a huge city in that Greek Roman pagan culture. It was the home of one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. The temple of Diana. Diana is a beautiful name. But Diana also went by Artemis. Artemis is an ugly name. Sorry if there's anybody here named Artemis. Uh, so they built this temple for Diana Artemis. And her statue was ghastly looking. It was this... Anyway, I can't even describe it. Looking at a Bible dictionary and it's just disgusting. But they had them all over the place. They worshipped it. They venerated it. They esteemed it. And... They, their city was known as the city of Diana. Great is Diana of Ephesus. Great is Artemis. Great is Artemis. They're shouting that all throughout uh, Acts 19 as the Apostle Paul went in there and preached and tried to preach Jesus and worship of God and Jesus only. And he created an absolute right. And it says the whole city came out in a tumult as a result. The entire city, including the civil magistrates, basically chased Paul out of town. So anytime Paul went into Ephesus, his life was at risk. It's a dangerous place, but he keeps going back. Talk about courage. Well, so why do, I do it? why do I keep going back to Ephesus and put my life on the line? That's what he means in verse 30. Verse 31, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have. Man, I'm, I'm boasting in you. Uh, I came in, I preached the gospel, you responded. Uh, you believed in the gospel, you became brothers and sisters in the Lord. I praise God for that. I thank God for your salvation. He said that in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. He's reminding of that. He's boasting in God that God saved them because of Paul's ministry. Paul's saying, but it was my ministry that was motivated by the reality of the resurrection. That's why I came to Corinth. If there was no resurrection, I wouldn't be doing this. If I was living for a lie. And you guys are beneficiaries of the gospel that I preach and the ministry that I have by virtue of your salvation in Christ. And I thank God for that. That's why he says boast. He's not boasting in himself. He's not boasting in the Corinthians. What is he boasting in the end of verse 31? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, my Lord, I die daily. I put my life on the line every single day as a minister of Jesus Christ that I might see some saved. Ultimately, for the hope of Resurrection in the next life. I die daily. Literally, I'm threatened with death every hour. That's what he means. Look at 2 Corinthians now. We're just going to thumb through a couple of verses. 2 Corinthians, if you don't have your Bible, just listen carefully. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So just a few months later, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. He didn't solve all their problems. They didn't respond 100% positively. They got into more, more and more problems. That influence spread like cancer and gangrene, unfortunately, in the church. So Paul had to write 2 Corinthians. Things were not getting easier for Paul. The longer he lived, the harder he got. gives us a glimpse. 2 Corinthians is his most personal epistle. Chapter 1, verse 8, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brother. I don't want you to be ignorant of what I'm going through here. 
This is not the cushy, plushy life that I'm living as I'm writing this letter as your pastor, as your apostle. Don't be ignorant, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. That's where Ephesus was. He was afflicted in Asia by people who opposed his ministry. Well, specifically what, Paul? That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Paul thought he wanted to die. He wanted to die. He thought he was going to die. That's literally what that means. When I was in Ephesus, I went under such duress from persecution for being a Christian apostle that I wanted God to take my life. As a matter of fact, my life almost got taken. That's what he means. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 8. He says, we, and he's talking about him and his associates serving in the ministry together. We are afflicted in every way. And he said daily, this is continual, this is constant, this is daily, this is hourly. It is nonstop, it is relentless. That's what he was subjected to. You know, I was reading through this Second Corinthians this week thinking, you know what, I, I got it pretty cushy so far as a pastor. I'm not, I haven't, I, have I ever had my life in jeopardy as a result of being a pastor? Uh, Maybe there's one I don't know about, but I can't think of one. There, There is distress. There is anxiety. There's pressure that comes with There's persecution, mocking and those kind of things. But, man, nothing like this. Uh, he's afflicted in every way. He wasn't crushed or perplexed, but not despairing. He's got that hope, the resurrection hope, so he keeps persevering. Verse 9, he's been persecuted, continually being persecuted, but not forsaken by God. He's been struck down, but not destroyed. God's guaranteeing that he won't be. Verse 10, always carrying about in the body, his physical body, the dying of Jesus. Then look at chapter 6, verse 4. He goes on, in everything commending ourselves as apostles, as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, plural, they are continual, in hardships, in distresses, verse 5, it gets worse, in beatings, many times, plurality, there are some beatings that Paul took that we know about in Scripture. I think of Acts 16, the Philippian jail. There are many other beatings that he was subjected to, we don't even know about them. Beaten almost to death. In imprisonments, plurality of many times he was imprisoned. Some we don't even know about where they were. In tumults, the crowds crushing in on him. Off with his head! They had to sneak him over the wall, his friends to hide him. In labors or hard work, in sleeplessness, in hunger, starvation. Chapter 6. Go to chapter 11 one more. This is the Apostle Paul. This is, anybody want to sign up for going in the ministry? Wilson, do you want to... You better think about, you better read these passages again. This could be your job description or the benefits thereof. This doesn't sound like health, wealth, and prosperity to me. Health, wealth, prosperity, and safety in a cushy calling. Maybe if you're a false prophet, but not for a minister who's true to scripture. First, uh, second Corinthians chapter 11, he, he goes into a little more detail. Verse 23, and he says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if I am insane. I am more so in far more labor. See, he worked harder than anybody as an apostle. Verse 23. And in far more imprisonments. So he was imprisoned more than the other apostles. Beaten times without number. He was beat up so many times he can't even remember how many times it happened. Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews who didn't believe. Thirty-nine lashes. Some people would die from those 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I spent in the deep. What in the world is that? Anyway, so go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, why, why am I doing this? There was no resurrection. And he's reminding the Corinthians. They've heard of this before, how much Paul suffered. I die daily. It goes on verse 32, 1 Corinthians 15. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? So a specific example that Paul gives is when he was in Ephesus. One of the times where I almost lost my life was in that horrible city of Ephesus where they were so antithetical to Christianity and the gospel to the point where, and he says that he fought with wild beasts. Uh, most commentators say he's speaking metaphorically. Wild be- what wild beasts were you fighting in Ephesus, Paul? I mean, really, were you in the 
arena, the gladiator arena, and you fought beasts there. And like Daniel, you overcame those lions. And like David, you overcame the bear who attacked you. Or I mean, really, Paul? But Paul is a Roman citizen, so the likelihood is that he didn't get subjected to being put in the arena. That was for non-Roman citizens. And that's why most commentators say this is, he's speaking metaphorically. It literally did happen in Ephesus, and the people that opposed him there, they were like wild beasts. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. Artemis or Diana, she was the goddess, get this, of wild beasts in Ephesus. So the capital of wild beasts. Almost lost my life there. And if I continue to put my life on the line daily and there's no resurrection, there is no profit to me. Rhetorical question, the end of verse, or the middle of verse 32. That is, if the dead aren't raised. And then, so he concludes with the logical conclusion. You know, if that's your world, if that's true, if there is no resurrection, then I have no incentive or real motives for life. I have no reason for being, uh, apostle and a minister. And he said earlier, and if there is no resurrection, I'm a liar anyway. So I'm just preaching an empty, meaningless, deceptive message. So if I want to be consistent and true and honest and uh, of what really lies after the grave, then I might as well do the end of verse 32, where he quotes out of Isaiah, which actually was a proverb that people were familiar with as well of the day. That's well, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow we die. If the Bible isn't true, Jesus isn't true, we don't have to face Christ at the end of the age as judge, be accountable to Him. There is no accountability from God the Creator. If evolution is true, and we just go into nothingness. If eternal soul sleep is true, forever. If there is no resurrection of humanity at the end of the, the grave, forever, then what do we live in for the next life for? That's what Christians do. Christians live for the next life. We do. This earth is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. And if there's no resurrection, then the only thing in existence and reality is this life. So live it up! And sadly, that's probably what a super majority of people on planet earth do who have rejected God, right? And maybe some of you lived it up before you became a Christian. Eat, drink, and marry. Tomorrow we could die. Have a bud. And on and on it goes. So Paul's very practical, very realistic, at the same time uh, making his theological points crystal clear. Abandon this ridiculous, heretical notion that strikes at the heart of the gospel of Christianity. Consider suffering ministers. And then finally, number three, the conclusion to his arguments regarding his incentives for living the Christian life and the power and the light of the resurrection. Third, consider shunning heretics, false teachers. Specifically the false teachers. The some, the minority that somehow snuck into the Corinthian congregation, weaseled their way in, wormed their way in, charged their way in, either from within or without. Take note of them. Mark them. First Corinthians 16, or Romans 16, Paul says, highlight them, literally. Take note, mark them out. X marks the spot. Deal with them. These are heresy. I've already said this. Uh, Heresy means to splinter. And so that's why we translate it as divisive in English many times. And it can be divisive, splintering behavior or splintering doctrine and teaching. And so he's dealing here with a splintering doctrine or teaching. There is no resurrection after the grave. It is damning. It is destructive. It is influential. It needs to be stopped. That's his point. And you need to stop the people. Start with the people that are teaching this. You go, you warn them, cease and desist, and then if they don't stop, you deal with them immediately with church discipline, whatever you need to do. If it's Titus chapter 3, so be it. This is public. This has gone public. This is not a private sin. The words of Calvin are true. Public sin demands a public rebuke and an immediate rebuke. That's what Paul says, verse 33. Do not be deceived. Literally, here, it's stopped. Stop being deceived. Quit being deceived. The implication is there are some in the Corinthian congregation who were true believers probably and actually bought into this and were influenced by this wrong thinking. Could be that those who snuck in and are teaching this aren't saved. They think they are. They're pseudo-Christians. They're liars. Maybe they're self-deceived. They think they're Christians and they're not. Could be they're the ones perpetuating this ridiculous idea. And they're friendly. they got the Christian lingo down. They're building relationships. People are putting their trust in them. And this false doctrine is being spread like cancer. 
And some of the Corinthians are actually buying into this. It's influencing their thinking. They're accepting it. And what's even worse, maybe, is condoning it and saying nothing about it. Just kind of ignoring it and just let it go. That's what we do in America. That's actually human nature, by the way. Five people in the Supreme Court redefine marriage as God ordained it for 6,000 years. And the supermajority of the response in our country, for the most part, as I can tell, is just kind of silence. I don't even know what a lot of people think. Tolerating it. Something so foundationally wrong. That was what was going on with this. Do not be de- quit being deceived. People, saints, dear ones, beloved, brethren, stop being deceived. Wake up. He's going to say that. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. This was a colloquialism they were all familiar with. And it was biblically true. Bad company corrupts good morals. When we hear that, we usually think of immoral behavior. That isn't what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about bad company is people you associate with that have wrong thinking and wrong teaching. So wrong teaching corrupts good morals. By the way, wrong behavior can corrupt good teaching and bad teaching can corrupt good morals. It goes both ways. Because that's what he said in 1 Corinthians 6. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. Well, how were they deceived? They were tolerating sexual immorality in their church and in society. That's what he said. He gives five words. Do not be deceived. Stop being deceived, Christian, which implies that Christians can be deceived. Christians can tolerate the wrong thing. Christians can tolerate damning heresies and destructive behavior. Really, that's why he said it. He wasn't doubting their salvation. Stop being deceived. And then he lists five words in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, that have to do or have a nuance of sexually immoral behavior. In other words, an attack on the sanctity of marriage as God gave it. It's amazing. So we are deceived by behavior redefined by the world. It's exactly what happened when they tried to redefine marriage. So the rebuke to that is 1 Corinthians 6. This one is, the emphasis is on teaching and not behavior. Expose false teaching. Deal with it. Shun it. Run away from it. It is destructive. If you hold on to a wrong view, a wrong teaching, a wrong concept long enough in time, the trajectory of your life, your morality, your living actually will change and follow suit. You are what you think. You will do what you believe. And it starts in the mind. And that's what Paul's trying to protect them from. Uh, don't be deceived. Quit being deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. If you keep holding on to this wrong view of the resurrection, it's going to affect your life and your morality and the way you live. Verse 34, as a result, become sober-minded. Wake up, you drunken, you, those of you who are in a drunken stupor. That's what it's referring to, people who are drunk. But he's talking about their thinking, their lack of clarity on this. You are not thinking straight about the reality of the resurrection and how it is related to you as a Christian. And you're also not thinking straight long-term about the consequences of embracing this wrong view. That's where we struggle as Christians and people all the time. We don't think about long-term implications of questionable views about things, especially what's pouring into the church. There are so many heresies assaulting the church today and all throughout history. It's, it's mind-boggling. I mean, my head spins. I want to speak out against this. I want to speak out against, I can't. There's too many. Can't. Can't define them all. Can't expose them all. You know what? Just make it simple. Just teach the Bible. Just use the Bible. Use that. Just vet your whole life with the Bible. Look through the grid of scripture at everything coming at you. But don't be gullible. Don't be naive. Just because somebody says they're a pastor or a preacher, stands up and opens his mouth, doesn't mean it's the Word of God coming out. That's how people get to see. Get comfortable. You let your guard down. You're not discerning anymore. Oh, he got educated here. He's got an MDiv. He's got a THM. He's a pastor. He's been there for 20 years. He's professional. He's got a big church. Well, that's how you get in trouble. This is proactive. This is a command. We are responsible for it. And Paul says, God says through Paul, don't quit being deceived. Quit being deceived. Your wrong thinking, your wrong views, and wrong teaching will affect your morality and how you live. Quit being drunk and unclear-headed in your thinking. Think clearly. What's he saying? Think according to Scripture. 
Become sober-minded as you ought. You're all responsible. Well, I'm not the pastor. No, you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, we are all responsible, right? Think clearly according to Scripture. Scripture is clear. Become sober-minded as you ought. It's responsibility. And stop sinning. Whoa! If you are a Christian or a professing Christian and you are tolerating wrong teaching, that is a sin. Some people, you never even give that a thought. Oh, no, that's all right. They say other good things. They say other, I mean, there are some prominent so-called evangelical or Christian teachers on television, best-selling authors and that I could, I could mention their names, just say, have nothing to do with them. Nothing. They are damning. They are dangerous. They are deceptive. And if you continue to tolerate it, actually knowingly it is sin. That's what Paul says. Present tense. Quit sinning. Quit tolerating the false doctrine that undermines the gospel. So here you can see, that's why I said Paul, he's starting to get real personal and passionate. These aren't just objective, non-emotional, logical arguments he's giving. This is very personal for Paul. This is his his people, his sheep. He, earlier he said, I'm, I remember I'm your spiritual father through the gospel. I care about you deeply. I love you. I want your best. The words of John who said, the greatest joy I have is when my children are walking in the truth. Walking in the truth. When I hear about Christians, especially people in GBF, people, members, occasionally here and there where they're impressed by or reading a book by or a sermon by or quoting authoritatively, someone that I know is just like an, a deceiver, an abject heretic, I, it, I, just, I grieve right in the gut. Sometimes I don't even say anything. Just pray, teach God's word and encourage the saints to think for themselves and be Bereans and examine everything in light of Scripture. Even everything I'm saying today from the pulpit. Examine everything in light of Scripture and God's truth. It's it's an obligation. We are absolutely commanded to do it. If you don't do it, Paul says it is sinning. That is the word he uses in verse 34. And Corinthians, you, you true Corinthian believers, Paul's trying to, he's talking to two audiences. Those who might not even be saved, those who think they're saved and maybe are deceivers, and then the true saints in that church. And so he, he's making these short phrases and statements when he's trying to just cover all of his bases, talking to everybody. So now in the middle of verse 34, he's talking to those who know God truly, who sincerely are believers, the Corinthian saints, and he says, for some have no knowledge of God. There are, Man, believe it or not, Corinthians, there are people at your church in your midst who are not Christians. They don't know God. They are totally lost. Are you cognizant and aware of that? We need, we need that reminder. Jesus said that. You got the sheep and the goats in the church till the end of the age. And don't try to go around and start plucking weeds and, oh, there's a, there's a weed and you pull it out and you're pulling wheat with it. Jesus said, don't do that. That's God's responsibility. You use church discipline to do that. So have, so be reminded there are people in your midst who have no knowledge of God. And then he says at the end of verse 34, you know, I speak this to your shame. This is embarrassing. You should know better. Think of the privileged congregation that Corinth was. They had the Apostle Paul. They Apparently they had Peter come to town. That is amazing. Apollos, mighty in the Scriptures, par none, who were compared to him. Uh, so they, they have been very privileged in teaching. That's why I said this is, I speak this to your shame. So this is quite the rebuke. Wow. Thank you, Paul. Well, with that, let's go back to 2 Corinthians. Um, give us some encouragement so we can get our appetite back for lunch. Some wonderful promises from the Word of God regarding the resurrection and Paul himself. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He's talking about resurrection here. And he says, For we know, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For we, Christians, we, or the apostles, for we, Christians, true Christians, know that if the earthly tent, which is your which is our house, is torn down. The tent? What are you talking about? Are you camping? Well, he's a tent maker. This is an analogy. He's not talking about a real tent. He's talking about your body. So the body you have right now, your physical body, it's dying. It is decaying. We are all dying. It's becoming weaker and weaker day by day. And it's just going to peter out and turn to dust. And we're here temporarily for a short period of time. For we as Christians know that if our physical dying body that we have in this life or our earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. We have a building from God. Well, that's awesome. 
a house not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. You know what that is? That's the resurrection body. Paul says, you know what? When we die in this life and leave this frail body, we will we have a home to receive us up in heaven, a glorious eternal resurrection body that wasn't made down on this earth. It wasn't made of the dust of the earth. It is eternal. It will never die. It is perfect. Jesus said he's preparing uh, mansions for all of us, right? And part of that's where we're going to live. And with that is the promise of this glorious resurrection body we're also going to receive in the eternal heavens. Verse 2, 4, indeed, in this house we groan. In your physical body, while you're, and as you get older, the groaning gets louder and longer, doesn't it? I taught seminary this week and I had I asked a question for whatever reason with the ten guys and I said, uh, anybody here got lower back pain? And eight guys raised their hand. And they were all over 40. And then the two guys in their 20s, they're not raising their hand. You don't have back pain? No, I never have back pain. Ah, wait till you're 40, pal. Um, so we are falling apart, decaying day by day. For indeed, in this house, in this physical body, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. What is that? That's our resurrection body. Longing. That's what the Christian longs for. Verse 3, And as much as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, this body, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. That is the resurrection body. Verse 9, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to God. Whether we are in on the earth or in heaven, we always want to be pleasing to God. Verse 10, Towards the ultimate goal, for we must all as Christians appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed, rewarded, paid back for our deeds that we did in the body, in this life, according to what uh, each person has done, whether good or worthless. Glorious resurrection we have to look forward to. With that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and thank Him accordingly. Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word. Thank you for the simplicity and the clarity of the gospel that we've been reminded of from your Holy Spirit through Scripture. Uh, we thank you for the reminder that those of us who truly know you and are children of God have supernatural incentives to keep pressing on. And that starts with knowing you personally, the God of the universe, and the judge of every soul, and also beyond the grave. Glorious resurrection with you for all eternity. God, we thank you for that awesome promise and reality. We pray that you would be glorified more and more in us as we seek to live for you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.